0: You're listening to Torchlighters. Moving into the area of like epistemology and what this has to do with the, what you know and, and therefore what you have the ability to speak to. People who are have more oppressed groups are people who have more understanding of the culture that they're within. That's because they have to live within the dominant culture. The dominant culture is the people who through their discourses and their ways of of, of speaking about things and creating cultures and things like that. They create a culture that oppresses these people. And because these people who are oppressed live within that culture, they have both the perspective of the oppressor, the powerful, and the perspective of the oppressed. So the more of these intersecting groups that you find yourself in, the more you have access to understanding what the culture is and finding those problematics that the critical and critical race theory is so interested in pointing out.
1: Is intersectionality theory with a capital T in the same way that critical race theory is would those like it would it be I mean it's not intersectionality theory, but you when you were saying that intersectionality is a theory
0: um, intersectionality is like a tool that theory uses to find its problematics or at least to determine who can find those problematics. Think about it like this you You are a person who is colorblind right? and you have, you, you can't, colorblind is a really helpful way of, of understanding this. This is in one of the videos that's, that's linked in the show notes. If you are, uh, you know, for instance, that straight white male that we talked about, you are completely colorblind, you can't see any color at all. You, you don't have any idea what it's like to be oppressed, and therefore you have no ability to find these problematic things in culture in order to affect political change. Therefore, straight white males, et cetera, have no ability to affect uh, political, meaningful political change because they're part of the oppressing class and they won't do anything to upset their own power control over society. But if you're that straight white female, now it's like now you have the ability to see like green, you know, and you can see a little bit more clearly than the straight white male. But now if you're that, Gay, white, female, you can see green and red. And then the more intersecting, overlapping identities you add, the more clearly you can see how culture is oppressing people. And the more, and this is the important part, this is the whole point of intersectionality. And the more clearly you can speak out against the problematics in society. That's the whole point of intersectionality. Who gets to determine how society is going to change? Who gets to determine what direction we're going to go with this? Well, basically, the more oppressed you are, the more you can see, the more you can speak out, the more people should listen to you because that's what's wrong with society. The only, and what this turns into is that knowledge basically is put into the hands of whatever category is deemed oppressed, and it's taken completely out of the hands of those who are called oppressors.
1: So anybody who has power is then an oppressor based on these definitions, correct? Or would that... Within these theories, is that limited to a certain group of people?
0: Yes. Uh, Power would be in the hands of the dominant culture, which is, again, defined as like straight, white, cisgendered, able-bodied men. They are the people who possess the power and then who use that power to control culture and discourse and the ways that we understand the world in order to benefit themselves. Um, It's this concept that the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. And the master's tools are the things that the people who establish that worldview, uh, the people, the people in power, establish a particular worldview or a set of tools for determining what truth is. So this is where, what are those things? Well, this is like reason, mathematics, logic, the scientific method, everything that modernity stood for. And if you want to bring that into Christianity, that's exegesis, that's dogma. Those are the creeds, all the things that stand for what. Uh, the dominant culture maintains as its discourse over the rest of culture who is oppressed by that, and anybody who disagrees with that is is supposedly just subjugated underneath that. This whole conversation on intersectionality is where you get the idea of standpoint epistemology. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, but that's an important concept to grasp, and there's a bunch of resources out there. Um, Sheologians actually did a really good series on, of podcast episodes on standpoint epistemology. You can go find them yourself if you need to, but standpoint epistemology basically says that how you are intersectionally situated within society dictates what you can and cannot know about that society. Those who are more marginalized have more access to knowledge, but what this ultimately does is, and you get this a lot, I've gotten this many times, is that people who are in the oppressing class, the powerful class, if they really want to affect change in society, what they have to do is shut up, listen, and believe whatever is told to them because they don't have any access to the experience, to the lived experience, that's another key term, to the lived experience of those people who are oppressed. Since they don't have that lived experience, the only way that they have access to understand what it's like to live in an oppressive society underneath the, the oppressor is by from the people that they have oppressed. And that's why... I've been told this many times myself, that if you disagree with people who are considered oppressed, all you need to do is shut up, stop talking, listen to what's told for you, and believe it without question, because they are the only source of truth that you have about that thing. It's absolutely destructive to all meaningful discourse, all meaningful debate. That's why you can very rarely have a meaningful debate or discussion with people who are sold out to this kind of stuff, and why it's not worth having a debate with them, because they've cornered themselves into this uh, into this worldview. What it basically does, speaking from a Christian standpoint again, is it turns people into God. It says that the arbiters of truth are people and that the only people who can determine how society can actually change and how society can actually get better is if you listen to me, not if you listen to God's word. Because remember, mm-hmm. revelation and God's word are one of the tools of the master. It's one of the things that have been used in order to beat down and oppress and cripple those who have disagreed with it or to keep them subjugated, even if they didn't know that they were being subjugated. So now we can't appeal to the scriptures. We can't appeal to exegesis. We can't appeal to a common ground or a common knowledge because that's something that the straight white males invented and used in Western civilization in order to subjugate people who were underneath them. And that's exactly the backlash that we've been receiving about our letter is that people are accusing us of using scripture as a battering ram to, you know, insult people. Yeah. And like, let's be clear, it's possible to do that. It's possible to use the the scriptures as a battering ram. Right. But it's completely different than what critical race theory is saying the scriptures are used as, which is saying they're a tool that the people who are in power use to subjugate those underneath them by maintaining discourses. And it's important when I say people who are in power, I don't mean like a specific group of people. I, I don't I don't mean a specific person who's in charge. Neither do the people who advocate theory mean that. They basically mean that just by the way that society comes to be constructed, that everybody does that. Everybody in society becomes an oppressor. Everybody in society becomes like that dictator or that, that tyrant who's at the top of the heap. And they end up uh, perpetuating those things because it puts them in a a position of advantage. Whether or not they've actually oppressed someone. Precisely, because it doesn't matter whether or not you've actually committed specific actions of oppression, you're part of the system. Right, so you're automatically guilty. You're automatically guilty. This is where white guilt comes from. This is where systemic racism comes from. And that's, that's so important to clarify. What people mean when they say systemic racism is not that the system, like our, our series of laws, have racist laws in them. They don't care because that's not the issue for them. The issue is that you're part of the society which was which is dictated in its discourses by the dominant culture. And the dominant culture says, this is how you're supposed to act, and if you don't act that way, you're considered weird or crazy or wrong. They come back and they say, well, I don't care if there's any, any racist laws. It, the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle is racist from the beginning because of the way that it's set up. And this is where that cynicism comes in. That's where you can have people finding racism suddenly where they've never seen it before. Right, because like we've, we've heard now that cheese is racist. Um, roads are racist also. What's, what's some more racist things that we've recently found?
1: I don't remember. It feels like there's new things quite often.
0: Yeah, the list never ends. Yeah. So so okay. So then let's let's take this one step further. So now let's say I'm part of the the ruling class. I'm part of the powerful class, and I've I've become woke. I I, I now understand. I've put on the these these glasses of critical theory, and now I understand that there's a problem. How do I go about fixing it? What do you want me to do? And what they tell you is that you need to do anti-racism work. That's a key term: anti-racist. Okay. And the problem is they're using a term that you think means one thing, but does not mean what you think it means. Because you hear anti-racism and you think I'm against racists. Yeah, heck yeah. And who doesn't want to be against racists? Nobody. Right? If you're if you're not anti-racist, then you are racist, right? Because you're for racists. Right. Well, the problem is that anti-racism work doesn't mean that you're against racism. Anti-racism work means that you have put on the lenses of critical race theory, and now you as a person have to do a very specific set of things in order to contribute to undermine this dominant culture.
1: Bodhi Bakum just released a book really recently, and it's called Fault Lines. And in it, he talks about the anti-racist movement. This is a direct quote from his book. And he says, the anti-racist movement has many of the hallmarks of a cult including staying close enough to the Bible to avoid immediate detection and hiding the fact that it has a new theology and a new glossary of terms that diverge ever so slightly from Christian orthodoxy. And then he went on to explain this new cult has created a new lexicon that has served as a scaffolding to support what has become an entire body of divinity. In the same manner, this new body of divinity comes complete with its own cosmology, which is critical theory, critical race theory, and intersectionality, original sin, which he says is racism, law, which is anti-racism, the gospel, which is racial reconciliation, martyrs, which would be like Trayvon, Mike, George, Brianna, etc., cetera, priests, which are oppressed minorities, means of atonement, which would be reparations, new birth, wokeness, liturgy, lament, the canon, which is CSJ, social science, theologians, for example, D'Angelo, Kendi, Brown, Crenshaw et cetera, and catechism, which would be, say, their names. And so that's just really interesting how it all lines up like that, like a cult, as Vodi Bachum said.
0: It is a religion because it's an entire worldview because that's basically what a religion is, is a worldview. It's a way of looking at the world. It's a way of understanding the world. Mm. And you need to understand that that's why this takes on such religious overtones. People are so fanatical about this. Because it's a fanatical cult. That's nice. literally what it is. And it needs to be rejected as that, as something that is destructive, not only to human society, not only to, to institutions like University of Northwestern, like your church, but especially your church, because this will rip your church to shreds from the inside out if it, has a, if it gets a root in it. It will do that in a, inevitably in a matter of time.
1: I think people underestimate how serious and dangerous the theology is. And this is kind of an attitude that I've seen at Northwestern at my school where people, they like, they don't like something, but they're like, well, it's just, it's just this. It's just a misinterpretation of a passage or it's just that. And they shrug their shoulders and walk away. But I think it's a lot of it's just until it's a whole big it's just that is just pervasive in in every corner. And, And so we can't just let it go. It's something that has to be talked about and addressed and not just ignored because it's complicated and hard.
0: Right. And for the people who say, well, it's not really a big idea. The question that I would ask you is how many genocides need to happen before your mind is changed? Because ideas have consequences and those consequences happen in the real world. Two examples of this the fact that ideas have consequences. Positively speaking, the the United States of America is the singular most prosperous, most free, most amazing nation that has ever arisen in the history of mankind, ever. You patriot. (laughs) I don't say that as a patriot. I say that because the ideas that it represents, the ideas upon which it was founded are good ideas. idea those ideas had consequences and those consequences were the most prosperous free society that ever existed contrast that with a state like russia which killed far more many people than than the holocaust ever did which an idea like communism created and it's happened over and over and over and over again and i kind of want to tell these people and it's that is the ideology that's coming into the, the united states of america through critical race theory My question is how many more genocides need to happen before you're going to wake up to the fact that these things matter and that we need to have these conversations. And that if we don't have these conversations, we become those people who are silent, who let it happen underneath our noses. And I don't want to be that person. That doesn't mean that you need to dedicate your entire life to it, but you need to be informed so that you can reject it when you see it. That's why we exist here. Okay, so kind of getting back to what we were talking about before we kind of went on a little rabbit trail, which was an important thing to to talk about, was that we're talking about anti-racism work. So the way that you, as part of the oppressing culture, fight back against this systemic racism is through anti-racism work, which is not being against actual real racism, but instead being against the racist system that you, as part of the dominant class, created and perpetuated how do you do this well you're supposed to basically you know do things like you know front uh, front minorities in your ministry for example or you use your podcast to talk about these issues or you scrutinize yourself in order to find out how you particularly insinuate racist things to your you know minority you have racist tendencies yeah i mean this is basically what robin d'angelo's book right what fragility is all about is saying like you need to spend your time your whole life really basically examining how you're racist not whether or not you're racist, but how you're racist. That's really important distinction because the assumption is you are, because you're part of the society and you're part of the dominant class, and there's nothing you can do to get outside of it. So the question, and Robin DeAngelo says this all the time in her lectures and in her book, is not, I might paraphrase here a little bit, but it's not whether or not racism occurred. It's how did racism manifest in that situation? That's the question that she asks, and that's the question that people are always asking within these anti-racism retraining things that so many people go along with they they come in with this assumption that this is a racist institution you don't have to prove it it just is because that's how culture is well the problem with anti-racism work done by people in the in the the power class is that they haven't given up that position in society so everything that they do in order to overcome their own racism is now read as an evidence of their racism Right, So the only reason why you put forward black people or minority people of any kind in your podcast, for instance, is because you want to appear virtuous before your white friends who all think that this is a good idea. That's racist. You're exploiting people of, of a minority uh, group in order to, to appear to be a good white, which is a technical term that, that some of them use. Or you always have racist tendencies. There's no possible way that you could ever atone for this original sin of racism that you are complicit in because you can't get out of your position of power. It makes it absolutely irredeemable. And if you're not willing to do that, if you have any kind of resistance, any kind of disagreement at all, any kind of disagreement that is beyond just listening for clarification, you are fragile. You have white fragility. and That's where Robin D'Angelo's book really comes in. You don't have the racial stamina in order to actually sustain the work of doing anti-racism work. And that's an evidence of your racism. And you can see how absolutely a powerful battering ram this is against anybody. It is a club that you use to to beat people into submission to your worldview, which goes back to the very beginning, the postmodern worldview. Once you start playing with epistemology and you take epistemology and you make it not no longer objective, but now it's completely subjective. The only thing that matters in the end is who holds the gun, who has the power. And what we're seeing in, in society is that the people at the top, if they're buying into this, which they all are, are starting to use this as a battering ran, as a club in order to beat people into submission, even though they don't necessarily agree with what they're doing. And it's happening all over the place, all over the place. Now, Let's offer kind of the, the the closing thought here, and then we'll kind of wrap up this explanation series of what is critical race theories. The upshot of this is strategic racism in the name of solving racism for the sake of absolutely destroying a community to remake it in something into something completely different. Okay, if I were to walk into a room and I was to talk to somebody of a different ethnicity than mine. And I was to assume that everything that they said, regardless of whether or not I had any proof, was that because they hated me as a white person. What would you call that? Racism. You would call that racism, right? It's assuming something that's true about somebody else simply on the basis of Of their their skin skin color. color. That is what we call racism. So critical race theory is nothing more than a racist ideology put in place for the sake of trying to solve what they say is racism. It's an imaginary problem that they've invented and proposed an insufficient solution to solve that problem. It's completely bonkers, and yet people are believing it left and right. People are falling to it left and right. And the upshot of this is that if you allow this into your church, it will tear your church apart, and it will completely destroy the witness of the gospel because this is not the gospel, and it has nothing to offer the gospel because it is completely not only in its origins, but also in its goals, opposite of what the gospel is trying to accomplish. So once you understand that, I really hope that that begins to open the doors, open your eyes a little bit to understand how dangerous this philosophy is, how permeated in society it is right now, and how much we need to fight against it in any way that's appropriate for us to do so. Uh, So I would encourage you guys to... um, you know, listen to this. Listen to the resources that we post in the show notes, and uh, and and get the word out so that people can actually understand <laughs> what we're up against. And yeah, Josh, Haley, any closing thoughts that you want to offer?
1: I think what people miss when they're trying to adopt bits and pieces of of these ideologies, like CRT and anti-racism, is how much it affects everything. There was a CQ cultural intelligence session for faculty members at the University of Northwestern, where they used a graph. Um, It was created by Crossroads Ministry in Chicago. It was titled Continuum on Becoming an Anti-Racist Multicultural Organization. Some of the bullet points under one of the last steps to becoming an anti-racist multicultural organization emphasized how in order to be that, to be anti-racist, multicultural, that you need to restructure all aspects of institutional life, and that you have to redefine and rebuild all relationships and activities in society. It's not this isolated thing. It's talking about everything, the entire framework.
0: And, and just to tag on one more, kind of one last thought with that, part of an institution, especially an institution that's Christian, is its theology. It's its beliefs. which means if you're going to redefine all aspects of something like Northwestern University, you have to change its theological commitments, because those theological commitments are the tools of the master. You have to, and that necessarily leads to a compromise of the gospel. It must, and it can't not. And if you don't believe me, and if you don't stop this, just check back in 20 years and see where University of Northwestern's at. It's just a matter of time. It, It will happen regardless, which is why... Now is the time to speak out. Now is the time to to try and do something about it. But it's, and this is also important to emphasize, the way we do that, the way we speak out is not the same way as you see the other side speaking out. It is not the same. We calmly, patiently lovingly, lovingly, which does not necessarily mean timidly. Good point. Speak out against the truth, against the lies with the truth. We rely explicitly and completely on the Bible as our source of authority, nothing else. And we constantly come back to the scriptures and say, this is our standard. And we will not allow anything else to encroach upon that. We will not allow this syncretistic Christian mashup with critical race theory in order to ruin the witness that we've had for so long, and that's actually a pretty good segue to the end of the, the episode. Because next episode we will be discussing several points of critique theologically and biblically as to why this is completely anti-biblical. I hope you can already see that, but we're going to make it really explicit next episode, and that will kind of wrap up our dealing with critical race theory, and we'll move back onto a kind of more normal programming of of theological topics and practical topics. Indeed. So get ready, everybody. See you next episode.
1: Adios.